All right, so it's great to be back, and um, I know you guys were in, you finished up Acts 23 last week, and Acts 23, <clears throat> just to quickly summarize, we know that Paul's been, wherever he goes, Paul gets chased, he gets harassed, um, and this, there, was a, there was a plan to, to, people basically took a vow and said, we're not going to eat, sleep, drink, do anything until Paul's dead. Because he is causing havoc, even though he wasn't, but he was. That's what they basically thought, because he was, excuse me, preaching the gospel. So towards the end of uh, chapter 23, Paul is moved to Caesarea. Does anybody know how many Caesareas are in the book of Acts? There's How many? I'm not sure. One, two, three, four. Five. Rebecca? No. Two. Yes, there's Caesarea Philippi, okay, which is a further outpost, I believe, up in Galatia. But then there's something called Caesarea Maritime, which is right on the on the side of the right on the the coast of Israel. So it's just north of Jerusalem on the coast. <clears throat> but Caesarea was a stronghold for the Roman uh, governor there at the time, and that's where a lot of the Roman troops would wait. Um, and during the festivals, if you remember when we went through the Gospel of John and even through the Book of Acts, we talked about how, you know, the Romans would, would bring in lots of troops during that time in case a riot or something would start, they'd be able to go right down into Jerusalem. But really what they were worried about at all times was insurrection and for the Jews to say, oh, you're not leading us anymore. We're not going to stand under and we're going to revolt because that's the, always the flavor in the air ever since you know, the Maccabean revolt, they've been waiting and wanting to do that. And ultimately they do revolt <clears throat> in AD 70. Well, really in AD 65, they started their revolt and the, and the Romans just came in and, uh, and just wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple as prophesied by Christ. So Paul is moved to Caesarea and uh, they sent um, him there. The, the, at the time, the governor's name was Felix. It's a lot of different F's, there's Felix, there's, there's Festus, who we're going to learn about next week. But uh, Felix was a super, super mean, cruel guy. Um, he was always in trouble with the Romans, um, even with Caesar, for, for being too cruel. Because, again, if, the, if Caesar, <clears throat> if, if the governor's too cruel, Caesar gets mad because you're, you're going to incite these Jews to revolt. But yet, at the same time, he has to use force um, to and, and, and crucifixion and punishment and flogging and all that to keep the peace. So um, <clears throat> they took Paul, they brought him to Caesarea, and they brought him before Felix. So that's sort of where we're at in verse uh, chapter 24. And again, what we're going to see in chapter 24 is that Paul is very consistent as a Christian. Um, Paul is very consistent He's consistent in his testimony, what he speaks, but he's also consistent to give that testimony and to preach almost at every opportunity that he has. Um, And again, you have to keep in mind that we're reading an account of of Paul's journey as per the Holy Spirit wants what he wants us to see. And as per Luke, what he want, what he believes is relevant to tell the story. So <clears throat> this isn't like a biography of Paul. This isn't like every single thing that Paul ever did 
you know, during his, his ministry. But these are the things that he really wants us to see. So Luke has been showing us a very consistent testimony. So we'll start at, at chapter 24. It says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Um, Ananias is um, not the Ananias that was the high priest during the time of Christ. This Ananias was the high priest um, <clears throat> during AD 47 to 59, which is sort of uh, where we're at right now. Right now, we're, we're, Paul is going to be kept in captivity for two years. So this is AD 57. And so this whole chapter, really, Paul stays and talks to uh, Felix for, for two years, as we're going to see. And so they hired an attorney this time. So this is really not like so much so like what we would say, oh, we're going to hire an attorney and, and get this. These guys were more um, eloquent orators that were able to speak very well. Um, they were able to present a very good case. So yes, they were sort of like our attorneys, but there was more of an emphasis on prestige and presentation. <clears throat> and so uh, they brought charges against Paul. They went before the governor. And um, it says, verse 2, maybe we should have Chris read this part of Tertullus, uh, since he's an attorney. And by the way, his name means triple hardened, which is also very appropriate. No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, Paul, um, you want to read a couple verses, Chris? Verse two. Read, verse, read verses 2 down through... Uh, nine. All right. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jew, Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Uh, how far? Yeah, um, uh, I was going to say down to nine. That was nine. Okay, good. Yeah, I have a little different translation. Just a note, uh, in verse 6, if you have brackets around uh, verse 6 too, you'll see... It says, in my version, it says, we wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysi is the commander. That section is not in the early manuscripts, um, but they did include it. <clears throat> um, as you can see, you know, the, the Jews are very, and again, this has nothing to do with being anti-Semitic at all, but the, at the, the Jews, especially here, they were trying, because it's not like on tape, it sounds like, or on the recording, it sounds a little bad. The Jews are terrible. Um, no, but they're very clever. They're very manipulative. You know, they're, they're appealing to, again, they're appealing to this guy, Felix, who's the judge. He's the governor. He's like the Pontius Pilate of the day. And they're just trying to push his buttons. You know, this guy's a troublemaker. He's causing dissension. He's a real, my version says, he stirs up dissension. He's a real pest. And all these are hot buttons. To, to the governor, oh, well, I, I don't want this in, in my, and this guy is a real, real, you know, he's a tough, tough, hard, hard guy. So 
When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. So here we're going to see Paul's consistency again with his testimony. And also Paul uses a little bit of his own cleverness in his approach. He says, um, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, Felix's name means cheer. Felix's name means happy. Okay, so ironically, because he's a brutal, you know, cruel, mean sort of uh, governor. So Paul is using this, I believe, as a play on words. Luke is showing us that. He cheerfully makes his defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. What is he saying there? I'm not, yeah, I'm following what I'm supposed to be doing. If I was who these guys say I am, I would have never went up to the temple to worship. And it was cool that he did that because remember, who gave him the advice to do that? You remember a couple, a couple chapters ago when he came back? There was a prophecy through the Holy Spirit, but um, the house he stayed at, they... Yeah, back in, in chapter 22, um, remember, this is it, after we arrived in Jerusalem, so Paul came back from his third missionary journey, he goes to Jerusalem, and James and all the elders, they greeted him, they began to relate to one another what God had done, <clears throat> and, um, and they were, you know, small talk, whatever, it was all testimony, but then it says, they've been told about you, the Jews there, and that you were teaching all the Jews and Gentiles to forsake Moses. And not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the custom. What then is this to be done? They're certainly here that you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself, pay their expenses so that they can shave their head. And everyone's going to know that all these things that are told about you aren't true. And so he, he, he purified himself and he went to the temple. So this is a really cool thing to see that God used the elders of the church not to say, yeah, we got to get rid of this law and it's, that's, you know, the Old Testament's wrong and the law is no longer in effect. No, they're saying, look, we need to have unity here. We need to, okay, maybe, you know, this isn't something that we have to do before the Lord, but this is not going to be a light switch. This is not going to be like, okay, now we're just going to be completely done. They had to work that out. And so Paul listened to authority, right? Another consistent thing about him. He went to his brothers and sisters, and that's what we have to do regardless. And a lot of times this has to do with people, you know, that don't believe like we do, you know, people that maybe necessarily uh, don't have the same exact doctrine as we have people that, you know, um, that require, let's say a little bit more patience, right? And, and, when, and we may even have to humble ourselves at times to be able to be unified with people. So I think that was a really cool thing there because now Paul is able to say cheerfully to Felix, hey, 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And then in verse 12, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion without, with, with anyone or causing a riot. So Paul, when he was there, he wasn't in Jerusalem trying to start trouble, right? He wasn't in Jerusalem trying to stir things up, purposely pushing people's buttons. Nope, he trusted and he knew that and he saw the bigger picture. 
And in, the, and in verse 13 says, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Verse 14, but this I admit to you, that according to the way, capital W, the way is what the, the early church was referred to as they were referred to as capital W, the way, until they became Christians. And where were they first called Christians? Does anyone remember? In Antioch. So the way, um, capital W, why do you think it was, why do you think that was chosen for the name? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way way to God. Christianity is the way to receive forgiveness of sins. It's no longer in the temple. It's no longer having to go to a priest. It is Jesus. And so the way can have a lot of different meanings. I I actually really like that, the way. That would be really cool. But I think Christian is a better uh, name. But I just think the way is really neat because it gives us a chance to, to explain what that is. And it says, which they call a sect. And it says, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. I saw a great meme the other day. I sent it to my daughter. It was a, a picture of a horse. And <laughs> it had a division right in between. And it had the horse's backside and the legs here. It said Old Testament. And then it had the horse's front and head and said New Testament and it just fits perfectly together. It's one giant being. The Bible is one complete unit. There's nothing more valuable in the Bible than the other. If we believe the Bible is the word of God, the whole word of God is what we believe to be the word of God. We can't just, you know, choose it like I like to say the buffet style Christianity where today, like after our baptism celebration, you know, we'll all walk up to the food that we like to eat, that we know agrees with our body. Okay, we'll leave the other stuff that other people may like, but we don't. And sometimes we approach Christianity that way, but even more, even worse, we approach the Bible that way. You know, and so the cool thing is, is that the Bible always will answer itself if you study and you seek the Lord in it. But we have to have, and I love this, what Paul says, this is such a great statement to read as we go into the epistles. I love the book of Acts as a foundation for the whole, all the epistles. Because when Paul's talking about the law and he's talking about seemingly that he's saying the law is done and we don't need it anymore, it's not exactly what he says. The law is fulfilled in Christ application of the law is still very appropriate for us today. So anyway, he says he believes everything according to the law. Verse 15, and prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men, he's pointing to them there that are accusing them, cherish themselves. And this is again, the focus in the book of Acts is always, we always see what's the focus in the book of Acts. Is it heaven is it, is it going off to a far distant, disembodied experience out in the clouds? No. The goal, the message is always resurrection. That's the good news. Why is that the good news? 
Is it just because we're going to have a new body and we're going to be resurrected and death is going to be defeated? That's great, and I love that. But no, the real greatness of the resurrection is that because there's a resurrection, it means sins are forgiven. It means the old is gone. It means that what was old and destroyed because of sin is now new and redeemed and restored. So the message of the resurrection is so important to our gospel. It is. The, uh, the, the power of God unto salvation is the gospel, and the resurrection is part of that power being displayed. But he says there certainly will be a resurrection of what? Both the righteous and the wicked. <clears throat> we forget that. We forget that God, everybody that we ever share the gospel to with, Everyone we see passing down the street, every person here one day is going to wake from their rest and stand before Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because they will have no choice. They're going to be in front of his tribunal. He's going to be standing there. You're going to be standing there in front of Christ. And it's either going to be a rejoice, embrace. It's going to be, um, I, I, I imagine Paul says that it's something that we can't even comprehend. We can't even comprehend the depth and the greatness of his love that he's given us and that he gives us. So I can't imagine how it's going to be when we see him face to face for the redeemed and the righteous. But for the wicked, it's going to be a really frightening scary, I believe, violent experience for them because they're, I think they're going to still be God-haters. They're going to still, they're not going to want Jesus at that point. They're going to probably say all the things that they've said and thought while they were here. It's all going to come out, but they're still going to have to confess. So there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. All people will be risen from the dead. All people will have to stand before Christ. The only way that you'll be able to stand before Christ and be considered righteous is if you're in Christ at the time of your death. If you're not, then your chances are gone. There's nothing in the Bible that says there's a second chance. And so that's a very, very frightening, frightening thing. And guess what? Festus gets frightened. We're going to get to that. And so verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always <clears throat> a blameless conscience. We've, we've talked about this keeps coming up, this, this aspect of conscience. Who can describe what a conscience is in, in, a, in the simplest way possible? What, what is a conscience? Jerry, I know you were going to say something. Go ahead. I know you know. You're not going to be wrong. I'm going to make you right. I'm going to make it sound right, whatever you say. Go ahead. If, that's good. See, Jerry's gone. He's, his, he's, he's stunned. He's in awe about the definition of the, con, of the conscience. What is it, Robin? What's the conscience? The conscience is an immaterial thing made up of uh, certain laws instilled by God to give us the ability to have a consciousness to know ourselves and, and our surroundings as something distinct from ourselves and individuals. Yeah. 
Again, uh, that's a great definition. Um, it's, it's an immaterial aspect of our being that is somehow connected to our being made in the image of God that shows us what is right and what is wrong. Everyone has it. That's why when we sin, we feel it on our conscience immediately. And it's so, so important when you sin and you have that conscience to clear it. Take it right to the blood of Christ. Take it right to the Lord. Because otherwise, what happens to the conscience if you don't do that? It becomes dull. Yes. It becomes dull. It becomes like a callous. It becomes less and less and less feeling. And then God says, I need to tear this rip this callus off and expose and make that conscience raw again, okay? And so that hurts when he does that, but he does it in love faithfully because he wants us to have that moral compass. He wants us to have that conscious. And that's the thing that the unbeliever or the atheist can never explain where this immaterial knowledge comes from. They can't come up with an argument for that. They'll just say, I don't know. Or if, if they're antiquated, they'll say it evolved. But that's, it can't, they can't, things that are immaterial, how do they evolve? How does logic evolve? How does morality evolve? It doesn't. It's got to be given from us supernaturally. And these are God's, this is God's character that's, that's imposed onto us so that we can sense and know this conscience is God. Now, he has a blameless conscience. What does that mean? Does that mean that he doesn't sin? Paul's sinless? Paul, read Romans 6. That which I don't want to do, that I do, Paul says. I know it's wrong, but for some reason, this body of this corrupt carcass that I'm carrying around causes me to do it. But it's the sin in me that's causing me to do it. My spirit wants to do the right thing. So he's not blameless But what I just explained, I believe Paul is very good at doing, is keeping a clear conscience before the Lord. And how do we do that? I love the picture of just standing in the blood of Christ. And if that's too gory for you, you could say just standing under the, you know, under the fountain of God. You know, standing, uh, as Chuck Smith used to say, stand under the spout until the glory comes out. <laughs> right? Remember that? And so that's a great picture. If you're, if you're doing that, you're cleaning your conscience. You're walking with the Lord. It's not about going, oh, I'm on my own and I'm doing really good. No, it's like, I can't get out from under this spout. As soon as I do, I start to dry out. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> I can't repeat that. Yeah, right. I won't be able to remember that, but that was, that, was, that was the Lord. Thank you, God. So stay under the spout until the glory comes out. Otherwise, you'll dry out. All right. Anyway, but in a view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience, both before God and before man. Another really good piece of advice here. Let's not just have our clear conscience before God, but we should do our best to maintain a godly reputation and a godliness amongst our brothers and sisters. So if, if I offend somebody, I want to know. I don't want to offend you because the Lord says that if, 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 I, if my brother or sister has something, and I know that they have something against me, I need to go and reconcile with them and talk to them about it. 
And so that's a really, really powerful uh, command to do. But it's about our conscience because if we don't do that, it's going to sit and our conscience will become hard. So God, vertically and horizontally blameless. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, this is verse 17, and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia. Remember that, the big map that that we gave you? Remember, eight, that's Asia, okay? That whole part of Galatia, well, you say you got Galatia up here, and then you have Asia over here. They all followed him to Jerusalem. <clears throat> they don't, and it says, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you. Again, the resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul was obsessed with. The fact that Jesus was alive. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul said our faith is in vain. It absolutely becomes meaningless. We're still dead in our sins. But because of the resurrection, everything else is rock and roll as N.T. Wright says. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Verse 22, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, Lysias was the one who wrote the letter in, in chapter 23, okay, to Festus saying, Paul is coming. So he just sent him, but really nothing going on. Festus is like, let's, let's wait for, for Lysias to come and explain things more. He was the commander. He was a commander of the Roman army. <clears throat> he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. And so that was a part of prison back then. Like when you went into prison, during the time, uh, during the, this time uh, in history, <clears throat> you weren't given anything. You weren't given three hots and a cot, as they say, <laughs> three hot meals and a bed, nice bed to sleep in. You were put in prison, and you needed to have people come and feed, give you food. You have people come and give you something to sleep, give you a to- give you towels, give you water, all that stuff. And so, a lot of that freedom came from being paid off as well. They would pay people off, and that's obviously, uh, if you watch, you know, the documentaries, they say that still happens uh, in the prisons as well. You can, with money, you can get a better stay or get a better cell or whatever the case is. So all that, and I'd like to spend the, the remainder of our time focusing on this next chunk here. It says. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Uh, the wife of Felix was Drusilla, or Drusilla. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And this happened to be his third wife, um, who he persuaded to leave her husband and marry him. So again, this guy was morally corrupt. He took this, this Jewish woman, a Jewess, and uh, 
from the daughter of Herod. And what's Herod going to do, right? He's, he's corrupt too. He's not a real king. He'll just, he's just a puppet king for the Romans. So he takes his wife, his daughter, and says, yeah, go ahead and do it. <clears throat> and that was his third wife. She left her husband. It's not a really cool thing. If you go back to chapter 12, this is the same Herod Agrippa that had James beheaded and Peter thrown into jail when the, when the angel came and miraculously uh, pulled him out. But again, here is the consistency of Paul. See, he spoke to Felix about the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And I believe Felix was that seed started to, to germinate in his heart. And so he called for, for Paul again, again too. He wanted to probably get some sort of payment. I think it says that uh, coming up. But what did Paul speak about? <clears throat> he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And then we elaborate. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became, became frightened, right? How different is that from our, from our preaching today, right? People don't usually become frightened, unfortunately. Um, it's because a lot of times we leave these aspects of our message out. But I love that Paul is talking about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And if you break that up, you could see those three things, right? Righteousness is something that we get immediately when we believe in faith. We're justified by what? Go ahead, you were going to say it. Oh, justified by faith, right? We become justified by faith and we be, do we, does anything happen to us inside when we become justified by faith? Do we start to, do we start to change that, that? Does that justification do a work inside of us? The Holy Spirit does the work. Holy Spirit does the work. What's that? New birth. So we, so we, we're made alive, Right. Now we're able to exercise that gift of faith, right? So the order of salvation is we're, we're, we're made alive from the dead. We're dead in our sins. So the Holy Spirit makes us born again. And just like a baby coming out, going to its mother naturally, when we're born again, we believe in Jesus Christ. God grants us that faith. And that faith now justifies us and makes us righteous before God. And so this righteousness is always something as it relates to theologically in our salvation. It's something that comes from God. It's not something that we can generate. When you see that, you know, Noah was righteous before the Lord, it meant that he was following God's commandments and doing, he wasn't, he wasn't sinless. So there's, there's actually, I think, eight different meanings of righteousness in the Greek. There's all these different meanings. <clears throat> And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the status of righteousness that Paul was communicating to Felix. And so that status doesn't cause anything to happen in us, right? So like if a criminal, Chris, you know, becomes free, 
he becomes justified in your court, that doesn't mean he's no longer has criminal tendencies. Doesn't mean now now he's, oh, he's going to be a good guy because he's now, the, the court just said he's free to go. And he won his case. No, it doesn't, right? It just gives you the status of what? Not guilty. And that person could still go out and commit a crime and he could still go out and have evil thoughts. He could still go out and do all those things, whatever. Same with us. Our righteousness comes from God as a status. And that is an amazing thing because that status can't go away. And so when Jesus looks at you and God looks at you before the Lord, when you get raised from the dead, you're not guilty. You're in Christ. So you have the same status, no longer the status of the head of the human race, which was Adam, dead in sin, corrupt, but now the status of the risen king, the righteous one, the holy one, died, died for our sins, rose again, seated at the right, where you have his, or under his head now. <clears throat> so this righteousness, if you want to read more about this, go to Romans, just study Romans 3, if you want to put that in your notes. Uh, I was going to read it, but we don't have time. So go through, through Romans 3. And then, he's, <clears throat> and then anyone have questions about that? I know that's not, uh, maybe it's the first time you heard it or any questions about righteousness. Anybody want to add anything to it? Robin, <laughs> you should sit a little further back next time, buddy. Yeah. That way, if you want to heckle, you know what I mean? You could heckle. No, if, you, if anybody wants to comment or application, that's, that's feel free. I, I think the contrast is interesting because Felix was notoriously corrupt and um, uh, crying like, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Are you late to him with such a lie, you know? Right. We do so, you're so great. We're, in, you know, yeah. uh, Judah's doing so well, are you? Right. And it was the opposite. He was notorious. And he was replaced uh, yeah. shortly after this because he was so bad. That's right. Um, so it's, it's just interesting that that contrasts with, meanwhile, Paul, for doing good, is on trial before him. Yes. It's like the contrasting uh, systems. Very good. So yeah, so yeah, Hubert had... I thought it was interesting that Felix, you know, trembled in his boots. Uh, so he had some form of conviction, but, but I don't think he understood the righteousness that could have been his, that, you know, the, the gospel that Paul probably, there's probably more that he said. And yep. that probably was not... You know, Felix wasn't making the connection. Yeah. He tells him, go away. Yeah. Yeah. Go away for the present. Uh, When I find time, I'll I'll summon you. Okay. And it says at the same time, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So, yeah, he, he was, he was frightened. So we definitely see something happening there, but we see his flesh pushing that away. That seed that germinates, right? That choke the word, the, the, the love of money. God's Jesus says chokes the word. Right, and riches. Yeah. Yeah. So the righteousness I see, <clears throat> Luke showing us this like categorically. Paul was talking about the status of righteousness that Paul so beautifully has worked out through the Holy Spirit in Romans, and then we see now the life of the Christian, which could be categorized as self-control, right? 
the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's the last thing mentioned. Okay, and if you see love and joy, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, gentleness, self-control. That's a chain that cannot be broken. You can't have, if you take self-control away, you got none of the other ones. If you take love away, you got none of the other ones. And they all sort of interconnect, right? So Paul is showing them this self that, that he's talking to him about this, um, this aspect of self-control that is a beautiful thing as, as a Christian, is to have the Holy Spirit in you granting you that self-control. We lose self-control when we start to feed the appetites of the flesh. So if you feed your flesh, you say to yourself, look, I'll use a simple example that we can all relate to. And for me, it's pizza, right? So the other day we ordered pizza at night and I knew that I could have a slice of pizza. No big deal. It would have been fine. But I know that I don't have self-control in that area. And I tend to eat all the pizza, okay, and justify it, okay? And so I just said to myself, you know what? I know if I eat a little bit of pizza, I'm not going to just want one. I'm going to want to keep eating. And then after I eat that, I'll say, well, I already ate this pizza. I might as well have ice cream, right? And then it just keeps going on. And that's how the lust of the flesh works. So we have to nip it in the bud with self-control. We have to know what our appetites are first. And then when we know what our appetites are, we have to make sure we don't do anything to feed them. And they're still going to creep up on you. You're still going to get smacked with it. But but because you're practicing a life of self-control and discipline, and Paul says, you know, he beats his body into submission. All those who run the race, why do they run the race? So that they can, I believe, so that they they can finish the race. And so that's 1 Corinthians 9. 24 to 27, that's a, that's a nice passage to look at. The other one was Galatians 22 and 23. Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 4 to 8 talks about, he talks about how each virtue leads to the other. Let me just read this one. This, I think this is an important one that we could take a minute to read. Um, let's get to it. 2 Peter 1, 4 to 8. So it says, you know, he's going now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply uh, in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control. So it requires knowledge of those appetites, knowledge of what we need to have self-control in first. It's not just going around trying to be like this super Christian. God gave us a mind. So let's Make sure that if something stumbles us, we build barriers and and put blinkers here when we know those things are going to be around. And then finally, judgment. We already talked a little bit about that. What is judgment? You see, judgment, I believe, gets a bad rap. Right? I'm going to talk to you guys about judgment. You know, it's like, oh, no. You know, it's scary. But you see, judgment really is a great thing. It's what we all want, good judgment. We want a good judge when we go to court. We want a bad judge. We don't want a corrupt judge. We want somebody that's going to do justice. That's what judgment is about. The The right thing to do. 
And so when we see about judgment, when the, in the judgment to come, it's not God's thing going, I am going to punish the wicked, although the wicked are going to be punished. But the reason the judgment is to come is that's the, that's the icing on the cake of him making the world right. Because he's making it right through the believers, through the gospel, is making the world right. See, we were made right by God. So now God can use us to go out and make the world right by propagating the gospel and doing good. But icing on the cake at the end is the judgment when God comes and makes every single wrong that has ever happened right. And so that's a beautiful thing. Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 1, 5, well, 1 verse 5 talks about this good judgment. Um, Psalm 9 uh, verses 8, Psalm 37, 1 to 6. And so <clears throat> to finish out our, our Sunday school season, next in September, in a couple months, we'll continue uh, where Paul goes <clears throat> now before not Felix, Festus. Now, Felix meant happy. Festus means swinish, characteristic of a beast. Okay, so he's another guy that lives up to his name. Uh, well, ironically, uh, Felix didn't, but uh, Festus certainly does. I got this note from the commentary. I'll, I'll read it to you. At the end of that time, Porcius Festus was appointed to supersede Felix, who on his return to Rome was accused by the Jews in Caesarea and would have suffered the penalty due to his atrocities had not his brother Paulus prevailed with an emperor Nero at the time to spare him. So Festus did some bad stuff. He gets the boot. I'm sorry, Felix did some bad stuff. He gets the boot and Festus comes in. So you got a couple months to read chapter 25. Anybody have any final questions, applications, comments? Feel free. All right, let's, Chris, close us out. Would you mind? No, okay. Mind. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for the example that we see that um, we should be bold to speak the truth no matter the circumstances. Lord, we thank you that we see that your will is uh, not something that can be stopped under any circumstances, Lord. And we pray that uh, you would move us to be bold and proclaim your gospel at all times and all places. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.